Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. I'm glad that you guys are here this morning, and um, I am thankful for... uh, people that are online. This is, um, I think a lot of us have noticed how much our world, how much our lives are built on rhythm, right? Even uh, even in the uh, design and creation of the world, God designs and creates in a rhythm, and we are designed and built with a rhythm. And when your rhythms are kind of totally interrupted and taken off, it, it can throw you. And so this is a rhythm that is incredibly significant and important as the people of God to gather together to worship God. And we don't take that lightly. We don't take the health of people lightly. We don't take, uh, even Martin Luther said, if I'm going to infect somebody, then I won't be there. I can worship God uh, wherever. But um, we want to be able to continue to, to do this with as responsibly and safely as we can as far as gathering here, but also just at home. And this rhythm to be able to sit at home and keep this together as a gathered people. Um, uh, it, is, it is a need, um, and it's not just a need of preference. It is a need of our souls. It's a need of our makeup, of our being, and all that stuff. So uh, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, I know, I think, uh, Joel, you had mentioned this, but the, you know, the, keeping the masks on is a way of loving one another and, and honoring one another, loving our neighbor, and uh, being able to continue to do this um, uh, as we can. Um, so with that, uh, I'm glad you're here. We're going to keep this morning, we're going to keep with the overall theme of the, the sermon series that we've been in, Far As the Curse is Found, and looking at the covenants of God, but we're going to take a unique perspective of that during Advent. Um, and looking more at how Jesus fulfills uh, different parts of God's covenant, um, sometimes we may look uh, very simply and just say, I need Jesus as my Savior. Uh, That is true, okay? That is true for you. It is true for me. We need Jesus as our Savior and our Rescuer. Uh, But that is is the the tip of the iceberg. That That is both profoundly true uh, and there is so much more. Uh, that is, that's not, that, that like opens up a door into a, a wide chasm, not chasm, a wide, uh, I don't know, it's like, um, oh, what's the Goonies for adults? National Treasure, where they walk into that um, room, actually Goonies is Goonies for adults, when you go back and watch it, sorry. Uh, you learn that on the first try with your kids. Um, but uh, where they open that treasure room and they light that it up and all of a sudden, it's not just this, I mean, it, it's everywhere. And so we want to spend time unpacking that. And the reason we want to unpack that, the reason we want to learn more, not only of what Christ did, but how he did it, why he did it, what all God fulfills uh, in the incarnation, the person of Jesus, there's, there's several reasons. One, this can explode our faith and our trust in him. This is not just to close your eyes and make believe that Jesus came to life and, and if you believe enough, it will be true, right? Um, this, is, uh, this can explode our faith, but this can also help us with a much greater capacity and understanding for our mission. What is the mission of God's people? What is salvation? How 
To what depths does it go? What areas of my life does it cover? Um, this can give you a greater sense of understanding in your purpose in life. What am I called to be and do if I'm a follower of Jesus especially? Does that give me meaning and purpose or is it just I go to heaven when I die and hopefully that's a while from now? And, and, and it can just bring all of that. It can reassure our faith and our trust um, uh, and, and just uh, give purpose of life of not your greatness, not what you need to dream and achieve and accomplish in life, but wherever you are, whatever role you play, whatever job you have, that you have dignity, value, worth, purpose uh, in your community, in the church, um, that you matter, that other people matter. I mean, it can explode all of those things. But another reason that it's important that we know and learn the, the stories behind this is because we will, this is when we looked at the, um, uh, the, when we looked at the parables, the seeds of the kingdom, because those seeds can be pecked at, right? There are things, there are temptations in this world. There's wealth and fame and power that can come and that can, that can choke up the seeds of the kingdom of God growing within us. There are doubts and fears and things that may come and birds may peck it off the ground and whatever. And so the more we learn and the more deep that that grows in us, the more steady and, and faithful we can stand on the day of temptation. And throughout Scripture, something you see over and 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 over again that we'll look at this week is that God's people tend to do a lot of things in God's name, with the name of Jesus even, for the wrong kingdom. And my hope is that this can help clear the clouds a little bit for our hearts. Um, there are three offices in the Hebrew Scripture. When I say offices, uh, like roles, okay, jobs. There are three jobs, three offices in the Hebrew Scripture that God uses to speak to his people. Each one of them had a unique role in the history of God's people, and they are the office of, anybody know? Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices, and God uses each one of them uniquely to speak to his people. Um, and we're going to take a look at those in depth over Advent uh, and how Jesus fulfills those. But each of these offices represent a way that God worked through people, through human beings, to guide and direct and communicate with his people. Um, and we're going to look at what role these played in the Hebrew Scriptures, but also how Jesus became the fulfillment of all of those. And so the one we're going to look at today is the role of prophet. Um, now, here's, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about like the prophecies about Jesus necessarily that he will fulfill. That'll, that, that will come to play, but I'm talking about Jesus as prophet. Um, how he is a prophet, how he actually fulfills completely the office and role of prophet. Present-day prophets will point back to Jesus, not, not uh, in any other uh, way. Um, and so as far as, we as, as far as Advent goes, Advent is that longing. Many prophets, uh, especially prophets, I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but many prophets would point to that day, that one day when Israel would be made new, when Emmanuel would come, when the man of sorrows would appear, they would point to that one day and what Jesus, so for Advent, it is a longing for that day. Now, i give a little warning. This is not going to necessarily be a nostalgic Christmas 
message where we go, oh, yeah, that's, that's like a, uh, oh, what's the, what, what's the painter of light? That's not, this is like a Thomas Kincaid movie where we're all in the village and, and you know, little baby Jesus uh, is in the garage of the nice suburban home. That is not, we're, we're not, it's not going to be that. Um, it's going to be a little more rough, okay? Uh, but this is going to be how the hope of the incarnation, the personal work of Jesus, allows us to hear the voices of the prophets, not with fear and condemnation, but with hope, okay? So let's first, what, first I want to understand what does a prophet do? What is a prophet? Who are they? Um, what do they do? And then we'll go from there. When I say the word prophet, or we talk about prophets, what do you generally think of? Do you have a, do you have a stereotype in mind? I'll give, some, I'll give some answers um, so we don't get too caught up here. Weird. Yeah, if you want really weird, read through Ezekiel. That dude did some weird things. He's not somebody you would walk up to and go, we should listen to this guy about God. This guy laying next to, well, uh, I'll let you read it. Um, confusing. Have you ever read through a prophetic book? It's confusing. I would, recommend, I would recommend the message for prophets, and if you're like, oh, is that what they're saying? Then you can go back and read like the ESV or the, you know, whatever else and, and see that. Um, maybe fortune tellers. Uh, the guy with the A-frame sign, walking down the street, repent or perish. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us this. It gives us a f- kind of a picture, and we're going to use this, but we're going to be all over the place today. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. <clears throat> a prophet, um, this is somebody who has been chosen by God, uh, and it's not somebody that simply tells us the future. Certainly, there are many things that prophets say that involve uh, the future, but it's not just somebody who's like a fortune teller. The primary role of the prophet was not to predict the future, uh, but to tell the truth about God. That's the primary role of the prophet. They are the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. Um, Now, sometimes this does involve a truth to a future generation, but this is not like a puzzle piece to be put together where you're like, okay, how how do we understand the end of the world from this prophet? And if you could have some flannel graphs behind me, that'd be super helpful, okay? That, sorry. Uh, That's not the primary role of the prophet. They spoke to their generation. And it involved future, not always that they were aware of, but they spoke truth to their generation. And we can't just skip over that as some kind of formulaic approach to the end of the world. Michael Williams, who actually wrote the book that we're looking at this series through, Far As the Curse Is Found, suggests that we don't see the prophecies of the Old Testament, of the, of the Old Testament prophets as predictions, but more as promises. The promises of God for ruin or for restoration. And, and let me give you the punchline before I even tell you the joke. Here is the great news, or the terrifying news, 
what we see through the prophets, God is always faithful. God is always faithful. So the role of a prophet is to speak on God's behalf. They're sent to either inform or remind God's people who God is and the covenant that he has made with them. And now we have lots of, there's lots of prophets throughout scripture, but there's also a lot of prophets who have written books to the people of Israel. Um, but the, uh, the first prophet, does anybody know who the first prophet was? Okay, Moses. If you think about it, Moses is the one who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That God met with Moses in the tent of meeting and conveyed to him the law, the commandments, all that was involved, the creation story, all that came to be. Moses is the first prophet, and then every other prophet refers back to Moses and reminds God's people of the law and the covenant that God made that he revealed to his people through Moses. So Moses is the first prophet, and he is the one to whom all other prophets refer. Does that make sense? Okay, I found that really helpful. <laughs> um, and so Moses gave the law by the word of the Lord. Now, the other prophets, just so you know, if you're reading your Bible and you're like, this doesn't make sense, I don't get it, the other prophets are not in chronological order. Okay, you can get a, chron a chronological Bible, but First and Second Kings tell the story of Israel, and all of the prophets, will, or most of the prophets, will fit into that story somewhere, but they don't fall in chronological order in Scripture. So if you're like, this feels all out of place, it is, chronologically. There were a few different types of pro or prophets to different places. There were prophets to the northern ten tribes of Israel after they split, after the southern two and the northern ten split. Prophets to the northern tribes of Israel until they kind of just blew up and disintegrated. There were prophets to um, <clears throat> the people of Judah, the southern tribes of Judah. Uh, most of those, those are the early prophets, most of those prophecies contained heavy rebuke. Uh, all of those, all of the early prophets came during a time of national prosperity when Israel was doing really well or Judah was doing really well. They had a king. They had land. They were an organized people. Their boundaries were growing. There was a measure of prosperity and wealth. Israel as a location sits at the crossroads of all civilization. They were in a good spot. And the initial prophets came to the people with a lot of rebuke and a lot of warning. If you remember Deuteronomy, take care lest you forget the Lord. The people had forgotten the Lord. Enter the prophets. And then you have exilic and post-exilic prophets. Israel was warned, turn or judgment will come. Well, judgment came. Jeremiah tells us the story of God's judgment coming onto the temple, Israel being destroyed, and the people being taken into exile. And when the prophets come and speak to the people when they are in exile, they speak more words of, uh, of uh, comfort and blessing. Okay? Um, and the reason is, uh, we'll get into the reason. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to give a brief outline of what prophets preached. Um, what did they address? What areas did they address? There's a general, there's a four-part 
kind of view of what the prophets preached. And we'll go through that quickly, but we're going to sit on one for a little bit. Um, But here's what I want you to do, all right? Don't check out. This is not just a history lesson. It may seem like a history lesson, but it's not just a history lesson. It's not just a theology lesson, lesson. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to these, the ways that the prophets talk to the people, the things that they addressed. And I want you to, I want you to ask the question, are they, does this address me as well? What do I have in common with these people? Is this speaking to me too? Here's what I don't want you to do. Number one, sin in all of Israel. And always think that they're talking to somebody else. Right? Every sin of every modern day Christian, the biggest one is you say, you need to repent. And they go, yeah, did you hear that? Yeah. Are the prophets talking to me? Not, are the prophets talking to Trey? <laughs> All right. Trey will worry about if the prophets are talking to Trey. And I, they are. I'll, they are. So, four elements that were involved in every prophetic message to God's people. The first thing that a prophet would do is they would remind them of the story of God and what God had done. Even the Ten Commandments, even Moses, if you remember, how does Moses start the Ten Commandments? Remember, the whole Pentateuch is built first on the story of God and creation in Genesis. This is who God is, how he created the world to be. This is how he's made himself known through Abraham and all these other stories and weird ones and good ones and hard ones. And then when he gives the law, the Ten Commandments, the first thing he says is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, here are the laws. They remind God, they remind the people of what God has done. Then, they would remind the people, they would remind God's people that they are, in fact, the people of God. That they have made a commitment and a covenant with this God. The law, I don't know if you remember when we went through the law, this was about, a, I don't know, a year ago, I don't, the time has, whenever it was that we went through the law, laws were different. It's not like a central legislature that made laws for everybody. The, ways law, the way laws worked in the Old Testament was, this is our agreements together that, we, that will bind us together. All right, if we're roommates in a house together, we're gonna make certain commitments of how we're gonna live together. God, a deity, would make a commitment with a people And basically, the people would say, all right, we commit to be these people, the people of of this God, and you commit to pagan gods, you commit to win our battles, you commit to do all those things. The God of Israel was, I will defend you, but also I will make my name known through you. And so the prophets would come and they would remind themselves, they would remind the people, um, you are bound to this God, lest you think you're not. One of the most powerful images of that was to the northern tribes of Israel uh, through the person of Hosea. If you remember, Hosea was the image of God and Gomer the image of Israel. Gomer being his incredibly unfaithful wife. And so if we ever ask the question, does God know what it's like to be rejected and hurt and wounded? The answer that Hosea gives us is profoundly. Yes, God knows what it is to be the husband of a of, of an unfaithful bride. But they remind him, you're bound to this thing. So first one, this is all that God has done. And the second one is, you are God's people. And you're in covenant with him. And then the third thing they would say is, this is how you're not living up to your part of the covenant. God was always faithful to live up to his end. But the third one is, this is how you're not honoring your commitment. We're going to come back to that in just a second and park there. And then the fourth was, 
This was a declaration of Yahweh's curse upon Israel. If Israel refused to be the covenant, of, covenant people of God, then this will happen. God will disown you. God will bring his destruction. Or God will remove his hand of protection from you. Now, God is slow and patient. Okay, it's not like God, every time they're messing up. I mean, this is, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years over and over and over again. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, after the exile, after judgment came, then that fourth one turns into God's declaration, uh, his promise of blessing and deliverance, that he has not forgotten his people. Now, the essence of the command of God's people is not do these things and don't do these things. The essence of the command of God's people is to be the people of God and bear the image of this God of mercy and grace and hope to the nations around you. The very formation in Genesis 12 of God's people is to Abraham is, I will bless you and then you will be a blessing. You will bear my image among the nations. And you will demonstrate God's mercy. And this is what brings God's glory. This is what brings God's glory. It's an unyielding trust, not in the land, not in the nation, not in personal power, not in treaties with competing and lesser gods, not in political power, not in personal wealth, not in personal safety or freedom. And Israel had begun to bank on those things as their hope. And what the prophets would come in and say all the time, those are false hopes. Turn, repent. And so, going back to that third one, here's the ways that they would not honor their commitment as far as being the people of God. Prophets would speak about general sins of the people, namely that they had separated worship rituals from an actual life of faith. Isaiah 29 says, uh, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a command taught by men. In other words, they would do external things and they would separate that from an actual life of faith. The prophets warned Israel about their idolatry. There's two modes of idolatry. One is worshiping false gods. They would bow down to Baal and that was a thing. They would worship Baal. But the other form of idolatry is that they would worship God in pagan-like ways. Okay, so two forms of idolatry, worshiping pagan gods or worshiping the one true God in pagan ways. And this gets a little close to home. Here's how you would worship a God in a pagan way. To presume his faithfulness because of where you were born, because of your last name, because you live in a certain zip code, uh, there was a presumption that they could get all the covenant blessings without actually having to be faithful to the covenant. Traditional pagan worship was tribal. It was nation-based. It was us against them. It was limited. It limited a God to a specific people in a land. You were the enemies. We are the heroes, regardless of our faithfulness. If we appeased the God, that was fine by doing these rituals, but really what it did is it made the pagan God bound to the people. We appease you, we make these sacrifices, you make our crops good. You win our battles. 
you do, you do all these things. And it's as if they were claiming the God's name as a magical divine favor or protection. And this was how every pagan god was worshipped. And this is a gross misrepresentation of Yahweh. Who said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Jeremiah 5 says they've spoken falsely of the Lord and have said he will do nothing. No disaster will come on us, nor shall we see sword or famine. There was a presumption. God's on our side. Um, uh, he warns about, uh, they speak, all right, sorry. Uh, the prophets would, would speak to the people about their greed. Uh, Deuteronomy, when God, is, uh, when God is talking to Moses, he says, you're going to have a king. You're going to want a king like all the other nations. So I'm going to give you a king, but be careful. Deuteronomy 17, uh, I think starting in, in verse 17, he lists these things. Be careful if your king has too many horses, too many chariots, too much gold, too much silver. Be careful about that because you're going to put your hope in those things. Do not go back to Egypt. Do not enslave your own people. Three kings in, you have Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, you have this beautiful picture. David has prayed this beautiful prayer over Solomon to anoint him as king. Uh, if you remember the story of God says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. What does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. And God's like, that's a great answer. Here you go. And Solomon does a great job of using that wisdom on everybody else. Not two chapters after that. It talks about how many horses and chariots, how much wealth Solomon has accumulated. Solomon is given the charge to build the temple, and so he enslaves his own people, and he makes, a deal, he makes some deals with Egypt, and then Solomon sends, spends seven years building the temple, and then 13 years building his own home, and his own home is filled with gold and silver. It's almost verbatim everything that Deuteronomy warned about. Israel had become secure in their own things and, and accomplished a whole lot without God. Michael Williams, again, puts it this way. Israel preferred being a player in the world politics and power to being a moral example to the world. Rather than following a law that encourages love, compassion, and justice, Israel sought riches, power, and importance in the eyes of others. Finally, the prophets warned Israel about their injustice as they began to acquire more wealth, more land, uh, economic prosperity. That became their end goal. That became their means. Uh, and they began to forget those. One of the biggest warnings that God gives is uh, that they would care for the poor, that they would care often for uh, those uh, in their midst, the, the, the suffering, the widow, the sick, the poor, uh, the outsider. And Israel began to forget those. They began to use those people for further power and wealth. And they would, wealthy landowners would take land from smaller landowners and they would oppress. Solomon even enslaved his own people. And here's the thing. This is what's important to remember. This is not those wicked pagans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. This is not those people that are doing this. This is the good 
upright, moral, religious people of God, the people that were called to bear the image of God to the world around them were actually oppressing their own people for wealth. God hates bribes. You see that over and over again in Scripture. You know why God hates bribes? Who can afford bribes? Rich people. There's a way to get out of justice. And God despises bribes. Over and over again, Israel simply fails to trust God and be his people, that he is enough. God is patient. God would send the prophets to tell the people to repent, turn to him, or judgment would come. And of course, Nobody thought they were talking to them. Nobody thought the prophets. Uh, and, and in every one of these rebukes, though, in every context, there is a remnant. There's always a small group of people who hear and turn, whose hearts are softened and they heed the words of the prophets. <clears throat> in every one of the prophets, every book of prophecy, there is always, there's, even if it's at the very end, there's always this picture of hope. Uh, the book of Amos. Whoo! Nine and a half chapters of basically Amos opening up. Like, I mean, there's actually some good one-liners in there. He calls them cows of Bashan. And like, there's some, like, I mean, a little out of context. But it, you could, there's some good put-downs in there. And God just like, it is harsh. But in every book, there's just a glimmer of light even in the harshest rebuke. And at the very end of Amos, right before he loses, the, right before he closes the book, he does say, but behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine. All the hills will flow with it and I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they will plant the vineyards and drink their wine and they will make gardens and eat their fruit. Isaiah has some of the most memorable references. Isaiah is quoted the most often in the New Testament. Um, and it was at a time when Judah was in, uh, in decline. Judah was at the, at the near end when Isaiah comes on the scene. And he tells them essentially that the end is coming and he tells them about their injustice and, the, and that they keep the external laws but they don't do anything to care for the poor and the outsider. But, as Isaiah says over and over and over again, that will not be the story. Judgment will come, but that's not going to be the end of the story. There would come one who will rescue the nation and restore them, rescue them out of exile. But there also would be one to come and, and rescue fully, restore them to what they were supposed to be, a man of sorrows, one who would be pierced for their transgressions, one who would put the government on his shoulders and would reign seemingly forever, this kingdom of peace, Last several chapters of Isaiah, there's this beautiful picture of restored creation. Isaiah 35 talks about even the desert will rejoice and bloom. So this is the makeup of most of the prophets. I'm assuming we can see some current day implications there. Let me give you a couple things about note of the prophets before we, we finish with Jesus. First, the prophets always address the people of God. There's one, there's one difference. 
um, and that is Jonah. And Jonah tells the people to repent, and it's actually that's the only book in the Bible where uh, the people of God are the bad guys, uh, and the, the out, outsider, the foreigner, in, ends up being the good guy. Or, I'm sorry, the prophet ends up being the bad guy. Um, but they're always addressing the people of God. Their focus is always toward the people of God, no matter how bad the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any other nations were, there was no, yeah, but what about those people, God? None of those. God said, quit focusing on them. No matter how sinful or powerful or destructive any of these, the Egyptians or anybody else were, the people of God were supposed to remain faithful to bearing God's image and trusting him. There was not an excuse. And then the second part is, they were not liked. tends to happen. When you come in and you tell a nation, a people, and priests what you are doing is an abomination to God, they tend to look down on you. They tend to not like you around. Um, and here's the thing. He talks to the priests and the prophets and the leaders, but it's not like the people were just sitting there going, oh, I wish we just had good prophets and priests. They were right there with them. The hearts of the people were far from God. Their behavior did not at all faithfully bear the image of Yahweh. In fact, it bore the image of neighboring pagan gods. So, back to Hebrews 1. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days, he's spoken to us by his son. What does it look like for Jesus to fulfill this office of prophet? Several things. Jesus, uh, the prophet, spoke on behalf of God. Jesus spoke, speaks as God. He speaks to us directly. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the, subjects of the, pro the subject of the prophets. The prophets would point forward to him. He is the one who would come both in judgment and in rescue. Just like the prophets, Jesus gave stern words of warning. Turn and repent. I mean, you think about the one who, we read this in the, in the, while we were singing, the one who came in the wilderness bearing witness to Jesus who would come. That's not a guy you would look at and go, we should listen to that guy. The one with the scraggly beard eating locusts, eating bugs, out camping in the, in the woods. That's a guy we should pay attention to. When Jesus comes, it's the same way. He gives stern words of warning to turn and repent, but it wasn't just this do what I say, it was trust me, Israel, oh Israel. If you would have just come to me, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. Be the people of God, be the city on a hill. Their trust to become placed in external behaviors, following the right social norms and comparing themselves to the other people about how good they were and how bad they were. Jesus is more the prophet like Moses. Moses gave the initial and full covenant of God, and then all of the other prophets would refer back to that, remind God's people that they were accountable to that covenant. And what Jesus does is he actually fulfills that covenant on Israel's behalf, 
And all the ways that the people did not fulfill that, Jesus does. But then he also gives a new covenant, a covenant of faith. And so any any prophetic type of word or person that would come after that, it does change in the New Testament. But a prophecy in the New Testament is to refer back to the new covenant of what Jesus has established. The absolute main message of all the prophets, either for ruin or for restoration, is this. God is faithful to his word. And one thing that Jesus declares, not as a prophet, but as the prophet, he proclaims forgiveness. Luke, his disciples proclaim that in him there is forgiveness and restoration. When the prophets came, the people that most disliked the prophets were the ones that were established and and honestly the ones that are religious. This is the warning that we have for our day today. It was always the ones that want to defend their kingdoms, their rights, their freedoms, their establishments. Or shoot, my kingdom, my rights, my freedoms. And Jesus speaks against those. Jesus did not come to satisfy the religious, help make them feel good about themselves. Jesus did not come to take the sides of the us versus them, regardless of which side we want to make that out to be. Jesus did not come so we could be radically individualistic and live out my own freedom and my truth. Uh, And he didn't come that we could just focus on the sins that we don't struggle with, the, the, the other sins that we're good on and blind to the ones that we do struggle with. And Jesus didn't come to justify the sins that we want to justify because Jesus isn't mean. Jesus wasn't a political revolutionary, although he absolutely messed up and threw into chaos every political organization that tried to claim him or war against him. Jesus is not the hope of God to those looking to maintain our personal freedoms or defending our own kingdoms. Jesus comes to be the people of God that the people of God had failed to be. And for those with humble hearts who can grasp our sin and our faithlessness to that covenant, who turn to him in faith and repentance, he does not just save us from our sins, though he does, but he also saves us to become, to bear his image and actually become the people of God to demonstrate the mercy and compassion and grace of God to the world around us. All right, this is why I love Advent. took me long enough to get here. Sorry. My wife this morning was like, honey, you don't have to preach everything about the prophets today. And I think I did. This is why I love Advent. Not, Not for those who see the chaos of the world in the way of their personal happiness and that this is all a massive massive inconvenience. But for those who see the brokenness of the world and know and long for some kind of hope, for those who see the sins of God's people and grieve for the state of the church, for those who see the brokenness of the world personally and corporately and know and long that, that God would enter in to right the injustice to war against our temptation of greed, the wounds and the wounding of lust, the pain of poverty, that a light has come into the darkness, a redeemer has come to fulfill what we could never could and make us what we were designed to be. 
Just like the prophets, Jesus recalls the faithfulness of God. This is what God has done. And he is the fulfillment of what God will do. Jesus reminds the people of God that you are bound to him. I have bought you. I have purchased you. You are mine. That we are bound to Jesus. And he invites any and all who would come, not just uh, a nation of Israel, but any and all who would turn in repentance to trust him, that through him they could become the people of God. Jesus shows us how and where we have failed in our covenant keeping, and yet he fulfills the covenant on our behalf. So his desire is not to punish us. His desire is that, that he would be known. And for those who see and repent and turn, he issues not the curse of God, but he has taken on the weight of our sin and gives us his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever grace to continue to conform us to his image, his people for the sake of the world. Um, I'll finish with this. There's this great picture in the Gospel of Luke. This is the hope we have in Advent. This is the hope we have of the Incarnation. Um, that God has entered into time and history to be what we failed to be as his people. Um, and fulfill all of those warnings, but also all of those promises. There's a great picture in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 2 is the story of Jesus' birth that we all love at Christmas time. It's a good, it's a good one. Uh, there came about in the days of King Herod, right? Uh, Luke chapter 4, you go a, little, a couple chapters down, and Jesus is in the temple at Nazareth. Uh, and he is, or in the synagogue at Nazareth. And the way that they did worship services is they would open up the scroll and they would read a passage from a particular, probably usually a particular prophet or from the law. And, um, and then they would close it and then you would debate. What does this mean? You would debate or you would agree and that's how you would get your lesson, right? So this is a little different from our worship services is what I'm saying. I just get to talk. And then you guys send me emails afterwards. Um, <laughs> Jesus walks in, okay, and they open the scroll up, or they give it, they, they, they take the scroll of Isaiah and they give it to Jesus, and Jesus opens up the scroll, and this is, what he, this is what he reads, this is Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is also Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord. Jesus reads this from the prophet Isaiah. And then he hands the scroll back, and he goes back to his pew, and he sits down. And this is what he says. Today, that scripture that I just read has been fulfilled in your hearing. Behold, God has come. He has dwelled among his people to fulfill what they could not. 
He has rescued us, he has delivered us, he has bore our sins, and he is calling us to be the people of God, not to presume his favor and that we can get away with whatever we want, but to actively, faithfully put our hope and trust in him. He has come and fulfilled that. He has invited us into this amazing relationship. And his promise that will be met is that he will come again. Amen, and come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are faithful to your word. Um, For ruin or for restoration, you are faithful to your word. Idols could not carry carry that. The the promises of man-made gods, the pagan gods, they could not do it. But you have been faithful and will be faithful to your word. And the hope we have is not that we are polished and put together or that we could be religiously satisfied or, or in our false gods here and there. The, the hope that we have is Christ alone. Crucified, buried, and dead, and yet rose again from the grave. And our calling is not just to be forgiven of our sins, but to actually be redeemed and restored working this out, however imperfectly, together to become the people of God, the people of the incarnation, to bear your image in the world. Give us grace to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.